Hello, Rich Bowlers here, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Dad Mindset Show. Today, I chat with Andrew Brady. Andrew might be a new dad, but he's not new to the world of being a dad. He's a mental health counsellor and facilitator who's done a load of work with men, dads and young men in the space of positive masculinity, father-son programmes and rites of passage. We do a deep dive especially on the subject of rites of passage, which I think is a particularly fascinating space and one which we as a society have a really good opportunity to reinvent for not only our children but ourselves. Anyway, I hope you really enjoy this chat with Andrew. Andrew Brady, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure. Now, <laughs> you're a mental health counsellor and facilitator who works with men, dads and young men. Can you tell me what inspired you to work in this space, Andrew? Oh, it probably, it's a pretty long story. I mean, it started, um, I've been a t- I was a teacher previously for about well, five, five years in the classroom and then a few more years as an outdoor educator. Um, but I probably started with my own mental health journey. It started sort of, I first started getting, experiencing depression when I was about 20. So I had sort of 10 years of kind of working through that and five to seven years of doing it totally alone. Um, and yeah, when, when I was a teacher, um, I was at Brighton Grammar. This was sometime later in, in my thirties and um, yeah, so I was in a boys' school and they had a big focus on positive masculinity and I came across in particular um, Steve Biddle's book, Manhood, and things just kind of came together at that point, sort of my own mental health journey, and then his book really spoke to me in particular and woke me up to probably a lot of the stuff I didn't know that I was working through and dealing with, um, and that set me on a course to move out of classroom teaching and focus on the well-being of boys in particular. And I, I, I was still there for another year in the classroom and I tweaked my focus to working pastorally and working on sort of the well-being team as much as I could and started to get involved. At, at that time, they started to um, run these positive masculinity programs and I sort of volunteered to be as, as involved as possible with that. And so once I got out of the classroom, um, I thought, being involved in the outdoor ed department was the best way of working with well-being of, one, of, of young boys. And, um, yeah, from there it's been a, a progression. So I, I left teaching and um, did a Master's of Counselling and still involved with Brighton Grammar's Positive Masculinity Programs and facilitate on their father-son programs. And, yeah, I, I guess that's a story of where it all, all, all came from in, in, in a nutshell. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about what your definition of, um, you know, positive masculinity is? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think for me more than anything, it's, it's being real. Um, dropping the mask and having the opportunity to drop that mask. And for me, that's, that's creating spaces where men in particular are comfortable to speak about I guess, speak from the heart for want of a better term and and speak about what's actually going on and can we drop the kind of facade and bravado and talk about what's actually going on in our lives and can we hear that from each other and realise, oh, wait, actually we're all dealing with these same challenges all together and we don't need to hide so much. That's the crux of it for me. There's obviously a whole lot more that goes into it, but... For me, that's the absolute crux of it. Yeah. Um, how, how is it accepted mm-hmm. in, in the school with the kids that you're working with? I, I'd say w- when the space is set really well, and I, I mean that in terms of from a facilitation point of view, when a space of real authenticity and safety is established, it's received really well. Like boys and I find with men and dads are just – I can't wait for this opportunity to speak honestly and be heard and have that appreciated. And, you know, I, I don't see, as a teacher, I don't see kids and, and young men as being any different from adults. Like they just want authenticity and realness. And so they're almost like 
oh, thank God I've got this opportunity now and I can just <laughs> say what's going on and yeah. um, we can kind of get through that stuff. So when that space is set, it's really well received. Um, when it's not as well set, they're a bit resistant naturally, as, as we all are, I think. Yeah. Were there any particular yeah. things that you would do to actually set that space? I, I think the biggest thing is coming from authenticity myself because kids in particular can sniff out inauthenticity very quickly and, and that's what puts them off guard. Yeah, smelling so, <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, um, that's always been my, well, educational philosophy and now counselling philosophy is you connect with the person first and so the engagement of, of, of young men, it doesn't actually happen in that moment when we're creating that safe space and, you know, we talk about using circles and that's what we do. We sit in a circle and we talk, but the safety of that space is set long before um, in the first engagements with those kids and, um, you know, as a teacher that's built just successively and um, lesson to lesson and day to day. But if I've got a, a group on outdoor ed camp, it's, um you know, taking that time to drop in and chat with each of them individually, maybe on a hike and make sure I chat to everybody and relate to them as humans. And so, yeah, I'd say that space is set from authenticity much earlier on and, you know, in rites of passage training that, um, you know, I've talked about a little bit. Uh, it's, it's referred to as... Um, Oh, I can't remember the term, but let's just say engagement. So we have to have them bought in and it's the same for dads and boys. And, yeah, that, that's just established through connection and trust from the get-go. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up rites of passage because this is the thing that I'm really fascinated with. Can you actually uh, describe what a, a rite of passage is? Because you've done a lot of work in this space, haven't you? Yeah. So I, I guess to go back to where that came from, um, Dr. Anna Rubenstein was working with Brighton Grammar. And so he was, he worked with the school for a number of years um, back when I was teaching there. So that was in 2016. And so I worked with him closely and kind of helped not facilitate those programs, but be the liaison, I guess. And, and then I went on to do some training with him. And I guess the rites of passage research comes from a long anthropological study of what traditional cultures did and of, of how they helped people in their cultures to move through these stages of life. They recognise that there are these natural transitions, um, you know, from child to adolescent and in particular the, the main rite of passage that we were talking about at Brighton Grammar was from kind of child to adult or, or from young man to, or, or from adolescent to young man sort of thing. And I think the work is in adapting that to the Australian culture and recognising what are the elements that these traditional cultures understood about what a rite of passage is and how can we kind of strip that of all the things that aren't our Western Australian culture but keep the, the core of it and even to look at what are the key things that we already do in Australian culture or in Western culture that are rites of passage and how can we apply this traditional understanding to make them even better? And um, Can you talk us yeah, through a, a bit like what Anna Rubinstein would have actually done in that program? What, what was an example? So, like, I, I can talk us through um, the kind of model yeah, that'd be of great. that. So there's kind of four elements of a rite of passage that, that was sort of found. I believe the research came from an anthropologist called Arno van Gennept um, from much earlier in the 20th century. And so he found that all cultures had this, um, these four elements and these are story, vision, challenge and honouring. So if you look at story, there's a lot of circles about sharing stories and you know, for example, one of those stories was the dads sharing what their life was like at the boy's age and um, another element is challenge. And so in those camps, 
there's an intentional challenge component where the boys are sort of given, okay, this is your moment and there'd be a circle around challenge as well. And so the dads would share what have their greatest challenges in life been with a view to sort of looking at like how did you find your way through? And so the boys kind of learn from that story as well. There's a visioning component where the boys look to the future and imagine what they want their life to be in the future. And then honouring refers to the fact that the community honours each boy in this circumstance for their authentic kind of gifts and talents. And so watching boys here from their peers and from adults in the community, what other people think is great about them is just something that doesn't happen very often. And that's such a gift um, for young men. So, yeah, they're the core elements that would go into that sort of um, experience, yeah. Oh, that's great. And you're dead right. There's so little of that sort of authentic sharing of of someone's innate worthiness, I think. You know, just looking at mm-hmm. someone saying, hey, look, you're an amazing person just because. There's nothing that needs to be that you have to do yeah. or to perform to actually establish that. That's that's like table stakes. That's mm-hmm. done. So don't don't worry about that. And I think um, once you know, once you can sort of recognise that we're all like these amazing sort of you know happenstances in the universe, it's like everything on top of that is just cream. Uh, but we put so much, mm-hmm. so much like pressure on achieving either financial success or, you know, scoring a goal or all that sort of stuff. And, and it leaves so many of us behind, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as, as you say that, I remember, so, so the dads would often, well, we'd offer a bit of coaching before they would do that session of like, you don't need to sort of make this really grand. Actually, the simplest things are, are often the best. And so the things that would come out and like, geez, I love how kind you are or I love how you push through with your schoolwork or just really simple things that are actually really profound and it makes it so that, I don't know, that sort of funny idea of we're all special, which is a a bit much, but in in this context it's we all have strengths that we all need and looking at sort of positive psychology, um, it shows that, if, if you're looking at a class of boys, like everyone's great in their own way and we all work together because we, we can't operate without everyone's individual little strengths. Um, yeah, and, and so the simplicity that comes through is often the most profound thing, yeah. Yeah, I love that one. That's one of my favourite words at the moment, just kind. You know, I, yeah. I, you know, that whole idea of I used to want to be a truck driver when I grew up, now I just want to be <laughs> kind. It's, it's like... Hey, it's a guiding light for me at the moment. Uh, you know, sometimes it's hard, but uh, it's uh, yeah. definitely keeping me uh, keep me focused. Now, you, yeah. you mentioned vision. What sort of vision would, how would you build that vision? Because that, that could go all sorts of different directions, couldn't it, Andrew? Yeah, so um, they, they'd be given a number of options. So they got given some time, to some solo reflection time, and they got some pads to write on or things to draw or whatever. They'd be um, encouraged to just imagine what their life would look like in 10 years. So if they kind of went to sleep and they woke up the next day and they walked out and their life was the best it could possibly be, what do you see instantly? And so like the way that is set up, it's, it's kind of, it's more like how do, how do you feel in 10 years' time if your life is as good as possible? Not what do you have around you, yeah. but how do you feel? And so then they would actually get an opportunity to share this vision with um, three other dads before they'd share it with their own dad so that they could really wow. have a chance to practice it yeah. and, and be like, oh, and, wait, and that own it. quite right. Yeah. That's what I want. Yeah. And once that's heard by a number of dads and just to have the dads sit there and really attentively listen, it kind of gives it structure as well. Yeah. Um, and allows them to own it even more and i suppose um removing the the any difficulties of saying something like that to their own father if they haven't spoken mm-hmm. so 
authentically before. Yeah, absolutely. So it sort of yeah. gets that, gets your confidence up and you're oh yeah, I've done it three times. Okay, this is it, dad. I'm on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> that reminds me, Andrew, of Debbie Millman, who runs the podcast Design Matters. I remember hearing her talk about how she used to give this activity to her design students to to write a letter to themselves post-dated 10 years into the future as to how they would feel and what their life would be like, what a day in their life would feel like 10 years from now. And she said, you know, so many of her students would write back to her, you know, years on saying, it's amazing. I'm actually living that life I wrote down. And just by having that exercise 10 years out, mm-hmm. it just gave them that that thing to look towards and, and, you know, don't understand how it works, but I guess if Mm. you don't know where you're going, you're never going to get there. Whereas if you've, you've put that anchor on how you want to feel in the future, it's actually an amazing tool. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you don't even have to reread that letter. It's just going through that process of imagining. Um, It's funny you mentioned that, like we got asked to do that in my year 10 year for myself at high school. And I still remember the stuff that I wrote in that letter. And (laughs) I think that has been a guiding light. I I remember this line, it was like, if you get bored in your life and and you're kind of stuck in your job, go call this guy and go make a snowboarding video with him. And it was like, wow, I really had a commitment and expecting that things might get a bit dry at some point and remembering, hey, this is what you love. You love being in the snow and you love snowboarding and you love, you know adventuring so i that, that's definitely been powerful for me it's yeah. amazing well and so the next bit of what you were talking about with with regard to um you know rite of passage you know honoring and so i guess having those other fathers around would would sort of create that honoring of whatever the 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 sort of young man's going through that that's how would that work can you talk to that a bit it would actually be set up as a circle. And so, um, you know, the dad would say something, but then two other dads would be invited to say something as well. And actually other uh, peers in the room, so other young young men as well. And it's actually not just in this rite of passage camp. Like I've done this on every outdoor ed trip I've ever done. So um, you just set up that space and always actually coach the participants on what a good honoring is and just what we spoke about before like keep it simple doesn't have to be over the top um try to avoid having it be being like a backhanded compliment where it's like even though you're annoying some of the time you're kind of a good bloke it's amazing how (laughs) if i mention that it just allows people to actually drop into the to just say the thing that's really nice yeah and that requires some permission as well so there's definitely some massaging and I say permission because I think that is such a big thing of like you have permission to just say what you authentically like about this person. And I think in Australian culture, that's something that we don't do terribly often. Um, The tall poppy syndrome is very much there and my wife's American and I spent a number of years in America and that's just part of their culture to prop each other up. Yeah. Like if you say something good that's happening, like, oh, good for you, that's great. Sorry, that's my terrible American accent coming through. <laughs> but it, it, it requires some permission in Australia to be like, it's okay to just say what is nice or, or lovely about this person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's really important because, like you said, you have to coach that sort of that person to, to feel comfortable with just being straight up with like a growth mindset sort yeah. of compliment. And that is mm-hmm. something that is a bit out of the ordinary. I, I went on a bike packing trip uh, a few months back and it was just a, a, a group of, I think about 12 guys. And it was a fantastic night out. We, we cycled about, I don't know, 170 K to from Torquay to Apollo Bay, but we had this oh. briefing session at the start and it was like all these guys, we've never met each other. We're just friends of friends and stuff. Now, it might be, you know, you might want to hang some hang shit on someone, you know, a bit of fun, but because we don't know each other, it can be taken the wrong way. So think of it like, you know, mm. you're aware of a shit sandwich where you say something nice and then you say something derogatory, then you say something nice. And and so that was, he says, well, it's not like that. Think of it like an open sandwich. You say something nasty, whether it's in good faith that it's like humorous, mm. you got to back it up with something nice. Think of it as like an open sandwich. And it was the best... <laughs> the best framing of a like mm. essentially what 
you know, you'd think of as like a, a bucks party where a load of guys get together that haven't met each other before and they're doing something a bit challenging or something. And and you've got to keep the 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 spirits up in a good good fashion and you don't want anyone mm-hmm. getting left out or anything and it worked amazingly because what would happen yeah. someone would say something uh you know someone was flagging or going up a hill or something and and then the, if someone said something even mildly derogatory even if it was in good fun someone would shout out okay you got to back it up with something good now <laughs> and it really yeah. kept, kept, held everyone accountable to propping every each each and every person up and it kept the group together really well i was blown away by yeah. it it's the first time i've experienced that and it, uh-huh. i'm going to use that in future because it, it works really well in like you say andrew a, a culture that is quite often you know there's fun being placed and mm-hmm. partially well-meaning but often it's undercutting at the expense of the person being sort of you know mm-hmm. talked about and and i think ways we can circumvent this or or you know embrace a completely different way are so much better and you know make everyone feel good yeah. and everyone sort of group together and and work well and i think we need more of that in uh in society yeah no, absolutely no yeah and i love that yeah i love that idea <laughs> i was surprised how well it worked but are there any so like you've talked about the rites of passage you know the the elements of rites of passage. Can you talk to me, Andrew, about the relationship between becoming a father and a, as a rite of passage? Because you've got a four year old son right now, haven't you? Oh, sorry, four month old son right now. So yeah. you, you've just come through this, so it must be very f- yeah. front of mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I approaching fatherhood, I was sort of thinking, well, I'm pretty sure this is a quite major rite of passage um, in every adult's life. Um, And I know a lot about rites of passage. I wonder if I can sort of apply all those elements to my own experience. And so I did. Um, And so two more elements. We talked about the four key elements of a rite of passage. The other two key parts are a separation and a return. So if we take it back to the young men to idea um they're always taken away from their community by the elders and they went through their rite of passage and then they came back as men and so you know for me becoming a dad I really wanted to protect that transition space between kind of being an adult and then being a father and because that going back to sort of Anna Rubenstein's ideas that's where the transition happens and he likens it to a caterpillar becoming a butterfly and so this in between the separation and return the caterpillar is in the chrysalis and actually like it's not a caterpillar or a butterfly it's just mush inside the <laughs> chrysalis and so in that moment you're stuck between two worlds you're not one thing you're not the other yeah and I felt I, I felt that so much like just sort of the month before um my wife gave birth I kept saying to people, like, I'm not who I was because I'm sort of waiting for a baby to come, but I'm not a dad yet. And, like, having awareness that that's where I was made things so much easier. Um, But I guess some of the key aspects, I I mentioned that because we're really conscious of creating that baby bubble and sort of read the book the fourth trimester and had this idea. Um, And if people aren't familiar with that, it's the idea that there's a, period after the birth of the baby where you kind of retreat from the world for, um, you know, 21 days or the whole fourth trimester, your, your whole world kind of shrinks back to just taking care of the baby. Um, but for us, for the first two weeks, that looked like not actually allowing anyone to visit. We had people drop off food and um, my parents visited. That was pretty much it. But allowing that space like that was our separation for this rite of passage to happen and take place and for the transition between adult to father to happen and I felt that was so important because I was able to allow all these like all the weird things that are happening like you've got a baby all of a sudden your life's not what it was and just to allow that transition process to happen um another key part and we talked about story and the rite of passage idea um friends of mine actually put on a little fatherhood 
ceremony for me. And we sat around the fire and most of them were already dads. And so they, we, we shared stories about what it was like when they became fathers and echoing what we talked about before, like what was life like at your son's age. And so we share stories about what that transition was like for other people. And uh, there are a few other things shared, like sort of poems about fatherhood and that sort of thing. And for me, after that night, I was like, okay, like here's these dads. They've just kind of allowed me into their dad world for a second. And it was like, oh, these guys are going to have my back once I land in fatherhood and they're going to be there kind of helping me through this. Um, So those were key elements of, of the process for me. And I guess in that ceremony as well, there was an opportunity for me to um, speak to my unborn baby and that was kind of the visioning process. So I I got to speak to him and sort of say what I wanted for him and who I was going to be for him and so that was kind of projecting myself forward into what I wanted to be as a dad. Um, Yeah, so understanding all those elements like, there's, there's things that happen regardless becoming a father and we kind of know now that there's like hormonal changes and there's brain changes that happen when we become dads um, and so our bodies do change anyway. But knowing these other elements kind of just smooth that process and I was so ready to be a dad like the moment our son was born. Um, you know, maybe that was already set in stone and I was ready to be a dad anyway but um yeah, I felt like those things really helped that process along. It, it's interesting you say 21 days because from my memory, it's such a short period of time. You go into hospital, not a dad. You come out of hospital and you've got a car seat and a baby and you have no idea what you're doing. And that's usually quite uh, maybe a day, something like that. It was mm-hmm. less in our case. I think it was a matter of hours. But, you know, that's mm-hmm. that can be quite jarring and I, I really love that idea of oh, yeah. of retreating and and just being, you know, your your own family unit and just getting your head around it. I I think there's so much sense in that. I, I can definitely see how that could have been, um, yeah, really useful. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'll definitely um, yeah check out that fourth trimester book. I've I've not read it, and I, I like your point earlier as well. You know, speaking to your unborn baby, uh, I love the idea that, like, did you actually write that down at all or anything like that? Or did you just speak it to the, the, the guys in the group? I just spoke it to the guys in the group. Like, I got prepped that I was going to have to do that. And I was nervous as hell because um, it was just a confronting thing to do in front of my peers. But I, I didn't really prepare it. I just kind of sat there and um, we've been sitting in, in men's circles for a long time with these guys. So I was quite comfortable in that space. And just kind of waited and to say the things that I really felt were important for me to say um, to our child. Yeah. And does that become almost like your values that you set? You can almost use, it, use it as a touchstone when you're in that situation. Yeah, emotions are raging. It's like, okay, yeah. think back. You know, oh, no, this is what I promised right at the start. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And. I'm reminded of that letter I wrote to myself in year 10 as well of just, um, you know, one of the main things I said to my my son around that fire was um, I, I commit to a sense of adventure with you and like that is adventures in the outdoors but it's also just seeing the whole thing as an adventure and trying not to get caught up and I'm reminded of that often like when I'm really caught up in the stress and sleep deprivation of it, I'm like, hang on. We're, we're a commitment to adventure here and everything can be kind of become an adventure as I've found in my four months of um, fatherhood. <laughs> yeah. but like even like being stuck awake in the middle of the night, it can either be something that's really stressful and awful or it can be like, Hey, here we are. We're changing a nappy at 3am. What's happening? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all about, you know, the, 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 the way you, your perception, the way you look at it. Now um, you did mention that there are some, you know, physical and like hormonal and brain changes that men experience when, you know, they go through birth. I'm just reading Michael Ray's new book, Who Knew? And it's really good. And he talks in that about, you know, almost like, I think it's the the amygdala sort of enlarging or something like that when, when especially moms uh, become a mother, but also when there's not a mother present, the father's amygdala will grow and expand. And, and that's, you know, sort of puts them on high alert. 
and that that doesn't turn off afterwards. What what are some of the other hormonal and brain changes that that you've come across in the research that you mentioned, Andrew? Um, so the testosterone tends to drop, or it does drop, that they've observed in a number of different studies, and so that allows the bonding between the father and the child to happen. Um, and you know, there's there's parallel processes going on for the mother as well. Obviously, she's getting a lot of hormonal changes. And by allowing the dad to connect more, he's able to protect that sort of mother-baby unit um, more so as well. So um, I'd say I'm just beginning my research and, and my understanding, I guess, of that process. But I just loved that you know, understanding on the behavioural level, like what's happening as we become fathers, but knowing that our bodies change in response to that as well and that that's adaptive so that, you know, they talked about the the testosterone idea that testosterone is there to sort of allow men to keep um, finding new mates and to um, be able to fight off sort of aggressors and that sort of thing but when his baby comes along that testosterone to drop allows him to connect to his baby and therefore feel more protective of that mother baby unit and that allows the mother to bond even more strongly with her baby so i just love that there's i don't know like all, all those things that we consider really masculine norms of being protector and but also being deeply loving and, and loyal are kind of hardwired in there it's like that switch happens and it's like all right I'm like I love this baby I love this mother and it's my job to sort of put a cocoon around these people yeah. um and go through my own process of changing who I am and connect to this little one as well yeah because a lot of people talk about the sacrifice that you make and all the dads that I talk to don't even think of it as a sacrifice. Mm. It's like this isn't no. this doesn't feel like a sacrifice at all. In fact, this is this is, you know, I'm benefiting from I, I'm gaining from this. It's all upside for me. And, yeah. and I, I love that sort of those sort of conversations that aren't the the typical cliche jokes about, oh, you know, mm. you, you, your life's gone now, it's all about drudgery and all that sort of stuff and mm-hmm. and it's just start nipping that stuff in the bud and just turning it around and and feeding those stories back into our our peers that are just about to have children yeah you know and, and pumping their tires up it's like this is gonna be awesome yeah. you know uh just get amongst it <laughs> you know Absolutely. embrace it yeah that's that's huge and like part of this and and you touch on that idea that um we can make the transition to fatherhood be something that's exciting and like like a new beginning sort of idea. Um, and there's these psychological processes that are observed and one's called the development of the motherhood mindset and the development of the fatherhood mindset. Um, I'm not sure if you come across those with the, with the name of your show. You yeah. probably <laughs> have. Um, and... I guess I bring that up because there's things that get in the way of that fatherhood mindset being developed. And so there is a natural process that brings the fatherhood mindset online, but there are things that get in the way and it can be those cultural norms that actually block us from feeling excited and feeling those, like a drop in testosterone is not a particularly masculine idea. And so that's actually scary for a lot of guys. It's like, well, who am I if I don't have, that and if I'm soft and tender like where's my masculinity now and so there's cultural ideas that block it um lots of stress can can block that from happening so I think it's also worth you know bringing up that if that process hasn't happened for a dad or if that doesn't feel like it's naturally happening that you know there might be things in the way but um yeah, we can get those things and we can facilitate that process to happen and to allow the natural process, I guess, of dadding to, to come online perhaps. Yeah. And when you talked earlier about how you sort of run father-son programs and so on and and touching on that sort of um, straight after the baby's born, having that time just to yourself to develop as a family unit, I it almost made me think that I get the feeling that when your children reach, say, 10 
or 11, that's almost another rite of passage I see as mm-hmm. a father. And I think we forget mm-hmm. that our children go through these phases, but as a father as well, we have to, mm-hmm. you know, we go through these phases also. We're, we're in step, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, the goal anyway. And, and maybe there's even like other you know, sort of milestone points for the father of, oh, wow, you know, your mm. your first child's now become a teenager. This is a new rite of passage for the father as well. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that because it reminds me that um, I haven't finished my development of becoming a dad. <laughs> well, it's on, on happening. That's exactly because um, when you said that, I was like, 21 days, I'm still going and I'm still yeah. not through this. Like, <laughs> well, like... <laughs> So, so that brings up a really key part of it that um, rites of passage happen in community and they have to happen in community because the community changes alongside whoever's going through the rite of passage. Yeah, so, they, can't, they can't just talk to the person the same way they did before. It's, you know, you have changed. Yeah. You are a different sort of being, like, a, like the butterfly. Yeah, and I'd love, so like an example of a really a rite of passage that doesn't work in Australia is the gap year, for example. So you know, young kids and I, I did it at like age age of 20 and you go off overseas and have this amazing experience and you become a totally different person but you come home and everyone talks to you the same way they always did and you kind of regress because so you've gone through this rite of passage but the community wasn't there with you. So no one's actually seeing you in, in, in a new way. Whereas so you talk about that when your child becomes a, a teenager that is a rite of passage for not only the, the parents but the community as well to be like, oh, you're not a child anymore. We now see you as a young adult and we will see you in a new way. So I love that. And, and Anna, again, would sort of talk about this idea like, so I'm holding my hands sort of one a bit <laughs> ab- above the other here. And so as um, when your child is quite young, the adult is much higher than, than the child. But as you, as a child grows up, that difference between, I guess, hierarchy is still like the adult's still on top, but only just at, at, at adolescence. So you're allowing that relationship to change as well. So, yeah, I guess from a theoretical perspective, that's what it is. And I love that you brought it up because uh, it reminds me that there's going to have to be regular processes to adjust to all the, the changes in my son. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I need to pick your brains on that later. Let's uh, let's talk and talk more about that because I I totally think I need to go through that too. The um, I I love that idea as well of you know, ad- just even accepting the fact that you have to change. If you don't change, you you're never. Yeah. And I think people get really sideswiped by the fact that you know you hear about dads and and sons especially going toe to toe because there is that fight for dominance and mm-hmm. there's obviously not been an adjustment as or, or yeah. recalibration each year so yeah. to speak and and it must be incredibly tough for say a father that thinks he has to have that you know he's been taught that you have to have that position of dominance forever and then to yeah. all of a sudden have a you know a, a son towering over them much stronger than them they're, they're you know that, that must cause all sorts of rifts if you can't update. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, um, I mean, I, I think about the fact that like fatherhood or becoming a parent is such a big transition. And because for many of us, like I had a child at 37. So for a long time, there hasn't been any very big changes in my life, like a really long time. You know, leaving school was probably the biggest one prior to that. And becoming a parent is way bigger than that. Yeah, and to know that actually from now on there's going to be so much change regularly, <laughs> and knowing that we we get so comfortable in a habit. Yeah, but especially as we get older, parent, <laughs> yeah. But I think, um, you know, again speaking from a dad who's very new, but um, being a parent is constantly calling on us to change, which is challenging because we like being in comfortable norms that are that are easy but um i mean like we've already found on our journey probably had about 10 different phases already it's like all right <laughs> he's sleeping this way now and our, our room's gone through about five iterations already yeah um <laughs> bed in one place no no bedside tables because there's a co-sleeper and now there's bedside tables again and yeah <laughs> well if it's any consolation andrew you know our kids are 11 9 and 6 and there's still those changes going on in a regular yeah. regular cycle Oh, so much change. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the only constant. But yeah, like, what an amazing um, personal development 
journey, I've got to say. Yeah, you couldn't ask um, for a better challenge to really, yeah. you know, put in front of yourself to actually stretch yourself at your absolute limits you know you look at you know, yeah. special forces challenge you know sort of recruitment things where they they sleep deprive people and all that sort <laughs> yeah. of you know it's got nothing on parenthood totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. all right so i mean you mentioned I, I wanted to touch on this as well because you mentioned depression earlier and we talked about this previously as well and i'd love your thoughts because i I'm speaking to so many people at the moment about their own depression, principally because I, I've gone through a bout of this as well. And I think mm. it's so important to actually bring this stuff into the open and not have it, not be ashamed of going through periods of low mood and things like that. Now, what's some of the, because you said you've experienced this since you know your early 20s, what were some mm -hmm. of the warning signs now? Because you, you mentioned that you can actually tell when it's sort of, upon you what, what are some yeah. of those warning signs that you pick up on andrew i think the most prominent one now and this is after quite a long time of working with this thing in myself but the most common one is just real feelings of of shame and lots of thoughts about the things i'm not doing well and the things i stuffed up oh geez that was a terrible conversation and so lots of like really shameful thoughts and i think I've done a lot of meditation in the last sort of five to ten years and I think that's helped in that awareness of noticing thoughts and noticing states of mind. And so noticing when those thoughts start happening, it makes me feel really crap and I start to get like an anxious belly and all that sort of stuff. And just taking a moment to be like, oh, these thoughts are happening because depression is here and these are symptoms of this state that's happening to you, they don't mean that these thoughts are true. Yeah. So I think that's a real awareness and, like, that's been an amazing insight to just notice this thought and, you know, um, certain sort of models of counselling and, and psych psychotherapy. There's the idea of, like, naming your thoughts and kind of externalising them, I guess. And in a theoretical way, that, that's, I guess, what I'm doing, but... Yeah, separating those thoughts from myself yeah. has been probably the, the key linchpin in it um, and, yeah, one of the key things that tell me that depression is upon me and, yeah, I'd say that's the main one. I, I, I notice I start sleeping more and I'm less keen to do stuff. I don't really want to hang out with friends and going for a run is a bit of a chore. All the all and, the things all so, the things that actually you know fight depression those are the things that tend to drop yeah, off I think which is so totally. uh, so ironic <laughs> but I loved your the yeah. way you you called depression deep rest and I think that's a, mm. a beautiful way to frame it you know and just embrace okay I'm in this stage of deep rest and what do I want to do to bring yeah. myself out of that and it, it puts more of a positive spin on it yeah um, no I I, I really love that idea it came it's not mine by the way it came from a youtuber whose, whose name I, I can't recall but um you know a psychologist introduced me to the idea of having seasons within ourselves as well and so my depression normally comes in in, in winter and if you look to nature and realize that everything goes into hibernation in winter and it's a time to to sleep and retreat inside and yeah the idea of depression being deep rest if I look at the period before I've experienced depression, it's been a period where I've been pushing things really hard yeah. and I've been working too hard and I've been getting overrun. It's kind of like the body's signal of being like, hey, you need to stop and you need to sleep more and you need to just pull back inside for a bit. And that seems totally natural. That happens during winter. Like there's just less energy going on and um, less sunlight. <laughs> Less sunlight I, I find that's and, and that's the hardest thing you know like the yeah. the dark mornings and just trying yep. to trying to wake yourself up in in darkness yeah. often yeah 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 it, it's um oh, it's been a really key insight this year has been you know, really trying to get out on sunny days and um 
even trying the the bright light therapy thing and that seems to be a, a big part of it as well. There's, so there's talk so to me a bit about that. How, how's that working? Mm. Oh, I, I feel like it's going really well. Um, I kind of joked when we spoke about me being a sample size of one, so it's not a great scientific study. However, like my subjective experience is that I'm starting to really notice when I'm a bit deficient on getting a bit of bright light. And if it's a sunny day, I'll go and work outside. If it hasn't been sunny, I'll sit in front of this light for a little while and that. I, I, I feel in my body like, I don't know if you ever noticed, the first few bright days of spring, they kind of give me a headache. It's almost like my brain's being woken up, woken up again. <laughs> And, and it's like, oh, that sun's bright, isn't it? But then, like, knowing by midsummer, it's like you don't even notice how bright the sun is. But so I feel that sort of feeling when I do make myself get into bright light during winter. It's kind of like I feel like it's it's affecting my brain in that moment. And that's what I've read of other people's accounts. Um, so, yeah, that's that's been my experience of that. And I, I think just being more, more aware, you know, I... I've noticed that I, I don't notice depression until it's really set in. Yeah. Um, and, and like a few months down the track, I'm like, oh, wait, you've actually been feeling like this for a little while. But then being Whereas kind to yourself, things. because like like yeah. you said before, normally you'd say, oh, you know, I'm I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. It's such negative reinforcement mm-hmm. in your head. Whereas if you can just own it and say, oh, yeah, I'm going through that phase right now and okay, well, time yeah. to, you know, just reflect on it. I've had some rest. Do I want to turn it around? Okay, let's do some positive stuff now and, and take away all that shame that would typically mm-hmm. be built around it. I certainly know from my perspective, I thought people that saw psychologists were broken, you know, just damaged totally. goods. And I had such negative connotations built around that. But having mm-hmm. gone through the process, I'm like, this is amazing. Why don't we do this sort of stuff more often? You it's know? the best thing ever, right? <laughs> exactly. It's like, well, like, well, I can pay someone to listen to me for hours on end. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, and like that, that's a process in itself, right? Getting to that point of feeling okay enough to, to talk about it. Like I had such deep shame around it for the first five to seven years of, of experiencing it. Like I didn't tell a single person and that was also part of my journey was gradually telling more and more people in my life and until the point where I'm happy to talk about it anywhere with, with anybody. And that just reduces the severity of it so much. Um, like mental health issues thrive in the shadows. And like the moment we start talking about it, it just kind of makes it all easier. Yeah. And you mentioned the bright light. Is there any particular one that you, you've, you're trying that's actually the one that's working? Because I looked it up after I, our conversation. I was like, I want to get one of these things. Yeah. I just did a really quick um, search and it seemed like the only one that was endorsed by any sort of medical brand. So I had to get um, flown over from America. And then it got here and it had the wrong plug. Oh, yeah, and it was course. also the wrong voltage. So then <laughs> oh, I had to no. get like a $200 um, transformer. <laughs> so like, if you want to go down that route, what is it? It's um, it's Carex is, is the brand. It's it's called the Carex Daylight, wow. C-A-R-E-X or maybe double R-E-X. Yeah. Um, th- there's one I think in Australia called the Happy Light. Yeah, that's one I come across. That's, yeah, and I, I think they report good stuff as well. Um, but I just read enough places that like this is the one that's actually got studies behind it. So I'm like, well, you know, it's a few hundred bucks, but then so is a few sessions of therapy. So exactly, let's, yeah. um, <laughs> let's give it a crack. Yeah, well, and yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy. Oh, that's good. One of the things I've been trying recently is cold cold water therapy. No, it's mm-hmm. called it therapy. It's basically yeah. jumping in an outdoor bath, you know, that's been <laughs> left, left full overnight. It got down to like 4.9 yeah. degrees two weeks ago. Oh, wow. And I was like, I really oh, don't wow. want to get in this bath right now. I really don't want to. I'm <laughs> half asleep. This is just rubbish. What am I doing? And then I got in and I was like, I feel amazing. This is incredible. It was, <laughs> it was such a, a, a pattern interrupt. And I think anything yeah. that we can do... Yeah. It, it almost feels like maybe it's even placebo to a certain extent, although I, I don't think it's placebo because there's obviously mm. a physiological thing going on there. But but maybe just being in control and saying, hey, no, no, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Yeah. And these are some of the, the quiver of, of things I know to put in place when I'm 
feeling in a position of low mood? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I just say again, what a journey it is to understand what those what what that quiver is for yourself. Yeah, and to also, you know, get to that point. Like I've been doing the cold thing as well, um, thanks to Wim Hof. <laughs> yeah, channel your inner <laughs> Wim. <laughs> and but it also is is the days where it's like, wait, I don't want to do this today, and I'm not going to do it. Yeah, because that doesn't feel like it would be good to myself on, on, on this day. And so really learning to listen to myself of like, when's the knowing, time to go and when's yeah, the know, time not to. Knowing, yeah. when, knowing when your inner sort of voice is just tricking you and just playing along, oh, yeah. I said this, he won't do it. And, and knowing when, yeah. when to push through as well. That's a real fine balance, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's where, you know, some of the main uh, you know, studied interventions for depression are behavioural interventions like exercise and, and all that stuff, and that's great, but not if you're doing it um, ruthlessly, you know, out of alignment with what yeah. you really want because otherwise you're just beating yourself up and, as you said before, you're it's, it's not being kind to yourself. Well, and so the, there's such a fine balance there. Yeah, I, I agree. And the thing that's actually worked for me, I find, is is having a long list of things. Whereas before I would have, okay, for the perfect yeah. morning, I have to do this, I have to meditate yeah. 10 minutes, I have to exercise, you know, warm down with some yoga, I need to do some journaling and it, and, and it just sets yeah. expectations way too high for the bandwidth of time you have in the morning. And so I wrote a much longer list and I'm like, if I can get one or two of these, I'm on the right track. Even if I can just do mm-hmm. one of them, I'm on the right track. So just really, really lowering the expectations. And I love that sort of, you know, that Danish phrase, you know, when they were asked how they, they uh, beat Bhutan in the National Happiness Index one year, they're like, well, we just have really low expectations, you know. <laughs> and, I, and I think that has been really key for me. And just going, oh, yeah, you know, I just have a cold shower. doesn't matter if I didn't do any of those other things or if I meditate for 10 minutes or even just start the meditation. You know, uh-huh. that's all a step in the right direction. And I, I love that sort of um, the stuff, the work BJ Fogg does with tiny habits. And and mm. he, his thing is reward the tiniest bit of what you're yeah. doing. You know, celebrate the fact that you put the, the meditation app on. That's it. That's the win. <laughs> you know, anything yeah. after that is gravy. And so, yeah. yeah, I think that helps you become much more kind to yourself. And you get much better results, I find, as well. You set the expectations super low. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to, you know, I, I don't think I have actually stopped a meditation for 10 minutes once I've started it. Maybe occasionally if something came up, but mm. it's not walking the dog, it's picking up the lead, I find. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like that kindness has come back up again. <laughs> yeah, always. <laughs> it can't, be, big can't, one. can't be too much of that, Andrew. But no. I, I think that's a wonderful place to end. Um, let's stick a pin in kindness and keep that at the front of our minds for the yeah. day. Uh, I want to thank you so much. Problem solved. Kindness. Yeah, Bang. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like to do today. Be kind. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I really appreciate you you sharing and being so open with us. And um, yeah. Pleasure. Wish you all the best on this uh, wonderful roller coaster ride called fatherhood. Yes. To you too. Well, thanks for having me, Rich. Appreciate it. Great to chat. Thanks ever so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Andrew as much as I did. If you'd like to connect with Andrew, you can reach him at menshealthmatters.com.au and I'll put a link in the show notes at thedadmindset.com. Well, that's all from me for now. I hope you stay safe and sane and until next time, enjoy your caffeinated beverage. <laughs>